It's a scorchingly hot day in July 1718, off the coast of Western Africa. It's miles of sandy beaches, rolling hills and mountains, and lush green spaces bring no comfort to the Cadogan, an English slave ship from Bristol. Under the baking yellow sun and through choppy blue waters, the Cadogan is being chased down by pirates. On the quarterdeck is a young Welshman, Howell Davis, the first mate. He watches the pirates barreling towards them. The Cadogan has just taken on a large consignment of enslaved people, now secured below deck. Davis knows the pirates may well take everything, even their lives, without mercy. Looking over his shoulder, Davis observes frantic crew members preparing for a fight. Cannons are being loaded, muskets and pistols too. Other sailors struggle in vain with the sails in an effort to gain speed. But Davis, an experienced sailor, well knows that outrunning these sea devils is not an option. It's not long before the pirates are alongside. Led by Captain Edward England, they charge aboard the slave ship, ruthlessly cutting down any sailors who resist. A cloud of white smoke from the gunfire engulfs the deck. Within minutes, the Cadogan's crew are subdued and being lined up by sunburned and callous-handed rogues who strip them of any valuables. Strewn on the deck, Howell Davis observes his captain, a man named Skinner, bleeding out. He's barely alive. The pirates have brutally beat Skinner and stabbed him with their blades. The wounds are fatal, but the captain still clings to life. One toothless, jaundice-eyed villain stands over the frightened and dying man and slowly aims his pistol. A bullet between the eyes finishes the job. Skinner is dead. Davis is in shock. Edward England tells the frightened crew at the Cadogan that he's looking for recruits. The assembled hostages nervously eye one another. If anyone had been keen to join before, the violence they've just witnessed now gives them pause for thought. Then again, Defying the pirates might prove just as fatal. One man steps forward. Howell Davis. He clears his throat. He tells England that he will not join. I'd rather be shot to death than sign the pirates' articles. A wry smile crosses England's face. The crew expect Davis to be slaughtered before their eyes. But that doesn't happen. Perhaps it is Davis's bravery. But England takes a liking to him. The pirate captain decides to release the looted Cadogan, leaving Davis in command. Before disembarking, England beseeches Davis to rethink his position on becoming a pirate and gives him a sealed letter, encouraging him to follow the instructions inside. 
for a while after England's departure, the letter remains in Davis's pocket, unopened. He may not admit it yet, but the germ of the idea has taken hold, a seed sprouting somewhere in the back of Davis's mind. Maybe England has a point. Maybe there is something to be gained from a life of piracy. After repairing and making ready to sail, Davis's curiosity eventually gets the better of him. He gathers the crew and reads England's letter aloud. It's claimed that the letter contained no less than a generous deed or gift of the ship and cargo and ordered Davis to go to Brazil and dispose of the landing to the best advantage and to make a fair and equal dividend with the rest. It's an instruction of how and where to seek a start in piracy. Despite Davis's initial resistance, the thought has taken root. He now proposes that the crew consider the letter's suggestion. Unfortunately, his fellow sailors are less convinced. They overrule him and choose to sail onto Barbados to report the attack. Upon their arrival, Davis is quickly turned over to the authorities, where he's held on suspicion of conspiring to commit acts of piracy. But Davis's mind is made up. A pirating he will go, and prison bars won't hold him for long. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag, alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. 
In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. It's uncertain where Davis got his start in life. But Charles Johnson's A General History of Pirates tells us he is from Milford, a tiny village in Wales, and is a boy brought up to the sea. Like many children growing up in the late 1690s and early 1700s, he has undoubtedly heard the fanciful stories of the pirate king, Henry Avery, and his kingdom in Madagascar. And by the time he became the first mate aboard the Cadogan, he would have heard the tales of pirates like Black Sam Bellamy, and Blackbeard coming out of the Caribbean and North America. But Davis's emergence onto the piratical stage comes at a time of significant change. The British government has retaken Nassau, and the increased military and naval presence is scattering pirates far from the familiar waters of the Caribbean, the Bahamas, and the eastern seaboard. Now, pirates aim their bows towards West Africa, and the Red Sea beyond. Howell Davis is about to join the mass migration of pirates. It's September 1718. For three long months, Howell Davis is locked in a Barbados prison for trying to persuade the crew of the Cadogan to become pirates, as per Edward England's suggestion. However, since Davis committed no real act of piracy, the authorities cannot convict him and he is released. Now free, Davis finds his way from Barbados to Nassau, desperate for employment. Here, he joins the crew of the Buck, a privateering ship, commissioned by the new royal governor, Woods Rogers. But despite the king's pardon to suppress piracy and many in Nassau accepting this clean slate, Davis is still eager to turn pirate. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Pirate Queens, The Lives of Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. For some reasons, Davis decides to take this opportunity and to become a pirate himself. He would have known about Nassau and its reputation, especially for piracy, and especially now that Woods Rogers has taken it over as governor. He also knew that this was a place pirates were hanging out because it was being used as a base, and also many pirates were going to Nassau to take a pardon so that way they could lie low or perhaps actually leave the profession of piracy, for lack of a better term. Davis is now aboard the Buck, amongst a hardy crew who are mostly former pirates, all with fresh pardons. Though whether they are truly reformed or not is yet to be seen. After a short time, Davis judges that many are indeed itching to return to their former way of life, like a habit they can't shake. But it's not only ex-pirates who are unhappy with life aboard a trading vessel. One crewman in particular is Walter Kennedy, a young pickpocket from London with dreams of becoming a pirate. 
This is an opportunity Davis must seize. He musters the crew and successfully mutinies shortly after departing Nassau. With the buck captured, a pirate council is held and Davis is elected captain of a crew of 60 men. Not that the crew of the buck could know, but their newly appointed captain is about to open a new chapter in pirate history. It is perhaps ironic that Woods Rogers, royal governor of Nassau and scourge of pirates, is in fact responsible for supplying the ship that kickstarts Davis's career. I think it was probably more of a natural turn of events that didn't really go the way Woods Rogers wanted it to. The reason for this is that even though he's governor, in 1719, when Howell Davis becomes active as a pirate, pirates were still very prolific. In a way, it's almost like a cosmic chance that Davis is being given a privateering vessel to go ahead and become a pirate. With Davis now in command, he releases the sailors who refused to join him, including the captain, and decides to leave the Caribbean at once. Not only to evade pirate hunters in the English Navy, but to find easier targets. Plotting a course across the Atlantic, Davis plans to plunder the sea lanes around West Africa, which is fast becoming a new hotspot for piracy. It'll be far from plain sailing. Fortunately, Davis knows these waters well. There were a couple of reasons why Howell Davis decided to sail for West Africa. For one thing, he had some familiarity about it, having sailed on slaving ships before. And also the region was really, really well known at this point for having large European fortresses and loads of wealth. He's probably been there already. And so he has a natural advantage of what exists there, who's going to be running things, what the fortresses will be like, who's in charge. It's January 1719. The buck has arrived in the Cape Verde Islands and casts anchor at St. Nicholas, a popular Portuguese island and stopping point for privateers and merchants. After the long trek across the Atlantic, Davis and his men need time to rest and replenish their supplies. St. Nicholas provides the pirates with the haven they need. To not raise concerns with the local authorities, Davis passes his ship and crew off as privateers. Like Sam Bellamy, Blackbeard and other pirates at this time, Davis knows deception is better than confrontation when it comes to successful pirating and is just as fitting in West Africa as it was in the Caribbean and Bahamas. Johnson's account tells us Davis's disguise works like a charm and he is able to trade for supplies without any problems. He was able to convince people that he wasn't a pirate. I think it's really that he was very intelligent and he was very, very charismatic. So it really wasn't difficult to pass himself off as a privateer. He could probably easily convince people of this, and he did. For a month, while the ship is cleaned and made ready to sail again, the pirates make merry on St. Nicholas. Some find themselves charmed by the luxuries of the place. Others are soon smitten with the local women. One pirate, a man named Charles Franklin, even marries during their stay. In fact, by the time the buck is restocked and Davis is ready to depart St. Nicholas, not all of his crew want to continue with him. A handful of men, including the newlywed, decide to stay and live out their days on the island paradise. Dr. Manishak Pal is a cultural historian and an authority on pirates. 
So it's possible that his pirates had signed aboard, assuming that they were going to have one kind of a life, doing what Avery had done, mutinying, heading for the Red Sea, scoring it big, and then, you know, melting into the background. It's also possible that they thought they were going to be fighting a particular kind of ship or doing piracy in a particular way. And then they uh, get out there and they've got Davis who's like, let's do costumes. That's going to work. And it does, but maybe that's not what they had imagined, right? You know, sometimes the weather's nice, the port seems nice, the ladies here seem nice. And again, pirates by and large not being great decision makers, maybe make a bad decision that like, I have a little money in my pocket from that last ship we took. I'm just going to spend it here and hope I can make my way home some other way. Weeks after Davis departs St. Nicholas, he embarks on a plundering rampage. He captures and raids several ships looting the treasure and pressing men to join his crew. With this aggressive expansion, Davis needs a bigger ship, and one soon falls into his sights. Anchored off Porto Ingles is a large merchant vessel armed with 26 guns. Far more powerful than Davis's six-gun sloop, the Buck. For a budding pirate like Davis, this powerful merchant ship is ideal. It's intimidating, exactly what a pirate vessel should be. Davis's attack is swift, and the merchantmen quickly fall into his hands. With no more use for the buck, Davis abandons the smaller vessel. It's February 23rd, 1719. The sun is out, and Davis is feeling charged. The pirates are just off the port of Galassi, what is modern-day Banjul, at the mouth of the Gambia River. Davis is preparing for another score with his new 26-gun ship, rechristened the Royal James. Incredibly, his target isn't a merchant ship or poorly defended slaver. It's the historic fort protecting Galassi, owned by the Royal African Company an English mercantile power dating back to the 1600s. While pirates have been known to raid and ransack small towns, Davis wants to occupy the fort and loot its treasures. It's an audacious play. These strongholds are typically heavily defended. To most, or no doubt many of his crew, Davis's plan must seem either foolhardy or desperate. But Davis is confident. If a pirate had nothing, if they'd gone for a very long time without prizes, if they had a crew that was threatening to mutiny, then it would probably be desperation going into West Africa because yes, there was a chance to attack and get loads of goods, loads of prizes, but they're also very well fortified and defended. A pirate like Howell Davis, who's already doing pretty well, but also has total knowledge of the area and who's guarding everything, for him, it's probably reckless, but also kind of genius because he knows exactly where to go and how to do it. And he knows there's not going to have any problem getting prey here. Davis is in luck. The fort happens to be ripe for the taking. It isn't heavily guarded and its defenses are only half finished. The governor doesn't even reside on land, but on the company ship, the Royal Anne, docked in the harbor. Even still, a direct assault would be suicide Instead, Davis orders all but six of his men below deck, and those he keeps visible 
wear clothes befitting legitimate sailors. Davis, the ship's master, and the doctor all dress as gentlemen. The masks are on. Davis raises the English flag and poses as a privateer. He calmly tells the governor that they are from Liverpool, en route to Senegal, but an encounter with French warships drove them off course. But he's willing to trade here to make the best of a bad situation. The governor accepts Davis's masquerade, and he and his officers are invited to dinner that night. Davis hides his budding excitement. The trap is set. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. It's night. The fort is quiet. Outside the thick walls is the sound of the ocean, the crash of waves, and the chirp of insects and nocturnal birds. Davis, the doctor, and the master drink wine with the governor at his house and wait for dinner. Meanwhile, the coxswain, Davis's navigator, wanders the house subtly checking for guards. Returning, he leans over to whisper in Davis's ear. He shares the good news. There's no one else in the house but them. It's time. Without warning, Davis and his men whip out their pistols, surprising the governor and taking him hostage. Davis fires a single shot out the window to signal his other men. On cue, Davis's crew seize the fort's armory, while others take control of the Royal Anne in the harbor. It's a brilliant success. Davis has control of the fort. The Royal African Company employees are held prisoner aboard the Royal Anne, whose sails are sabotaged and ammunition removed. Storming the treasury, Davis can't wait to take the island's great cache of wealth. They imagine riches beyond their wildest dreams. Much to his disappointment, that's where the plan falters. The majority of the wealth has recently been sent away. But it's not a total loss. There is 2,000 pounds worth of gold bars, worth 230,000 pounds by today's standards. Davis's cunning plan to capture the governor has still delivered a sizable haul. 
So what possessed Davis to try to, to dress up and put on a little play and take people hostage instead of doing regular pirate things like attacking ships? Yeah, hostage taking was a part of piracy. It's something that we see practiced a bit in the Caribbean and the Americas. It's definitely something that you see all over the Mediterranean. Maybe he had a flair for the dramatic, was sort of imagining a pirate's version of Ocean's Eleven. At least the first time he pulled this little trick, he was able to pull it off with very little inconvenience to himself and got, I think, what, 2,000 pounds ransom, which is a pretty good haul and more than you could expect to get from a ship unless it's got like a very rich cargo on board. So at least in that sense, there's a certain appeal to just holding somebody hostage and getting the ransom in money, which you can immediately share out to your men who, you know, maybe they were getting restless and they wanted a payoff. Days after taking the fort, Davis's crew have turned it into a pirate den. But it doesn't hold the potential of becoming a new Nassau or fabled pirate kingdom, such as Henry Avery is said to have forged in Madagascar. It's only a matter of time before company ships or the Royal Navy arrive. Even as the pirates enjoy the comforts of their success, Davis keeps a lookout posted. And sure enough, it's not long before a ship appears on the horizon. Davis orders the pirates to evacuate the fort. But the unnamed ship closes in too fast, rushing into the harbor and blocking the pirates' escape. Trapped, Davis readies the guns, preparing to shoot their way out. When the incoming ship raises its flag, Davis heaves a sigh of relief. It's not an English flag that flies atop the mast, but a white sail emblazoned with a jet black skeleton. A Jolly Roger, and a distinctive one at that. The vessel belongs to the notorious French pirate Olivier Levasseur, aka La Buse, the Buzzard. La Buse is a welcome arrival. The pirates spend another week drinking and partying at the fort. It's easy to imagine the crews reminiscing about the glory days of Nassau, as well as sharing their concerns about the shifting landscape and uncertain future they face. After a week of celebrations, Labuse and Davis agree to leave the fort and sail in consort. After all, two crews are better than one. The thing I like about that story of Labuse meeting Davis in the middle of the ocean and then not recognizing each other and then recognizing each other and instead of attacking, making an alliance, is it raises a lot of interesting questions about loyalty among pirates. And we do know that pirates were very prone in the Western Atlantic and in the Red Sea to form these like impromptu alliances. And so here we can kind of see that happening in real time. So Howell Davis ends up hooking up with these guys and you know, sort of sailing down the Gold Coast looking for prizes. It's April 1719. Davis's band of scurvy sea rovers is about to get even bigger. Sailing up the coast, Davis and Labuse come upon another pirate ship, the Maroon, captained by one Thomas Coughlin. Back in 1717, Coughlin and Labuse sailed together under a pirate captain named Christopher Moody. Moody believed Coughlin to be a psychopath and eventually marooned him and 25 others. 
Coughlin and Labuse greet and soon reaffirm their friendship. But there are signs that Moody's judgment might not be far off. Howell Davis boards Coughlin's vessel, where he finds a captive merchant captain named William Snellgrave and his crew. Earlier that day, Coughlin had seized their slave ship and press-ganged the crew and cargo of enslaved people. Davis is horrified. He's shocked at Snellgrave's swollen face. He cowers and shrinks away, clutching his bruised arms in their blood-stained sleeves. Snellgrave will later report that Coughlin was famous for his brutality. Indeed, due to his resisting the pirate's assault, Snellgrave states that a pirate with the butt-end of a pistol endeavored to beat out my brains. To Snellgrave's surprise, Davis is gracious. He apologizes for Coughlin's cruelty, assuring him his crew will not harm him. He also explains that Coughlin and his company are hell-bent on taking revenge against merchant ship commanders, whom they see as responsible for driving them into piracy. It's a strong indication of a growing ideology forming under the black flag. But some suspect that Davis is once again putting on an act in order to curry favor with a potential witness. I sometimes wonder if this wasn't Davis being good cop and Snellgrave not quite picking up on that because Davis, who we know was good at kind of acting the gentleman, played into the social stereotypes that Snellgrave was expecting to see in a commander of men. So I think that's one possibility is that this was a little bit of putting on a show because, you know, again, Snellgrave wasn't killed and Coughlin does seem to have been violent and to have, have enjoyed threatening him, but pirates didn't tend to needlessly kill officers when they, they didn't have to do it. After days of getting to know each other, Charles Johnson tells us, at this junction of Confederates and Brethren in iniquity, Coughlin agrees to sail with Davis and Lebuse, and Davis is made the Commodore. Perhaps a new flying gang will take shape after all. The trio set sail for Sierra Leone, with the plan to attack another Royal African Company fort. This time there'll be no risky deception or play-acting. They now have the power to go in all guns blazing. Arriving in Sierra Leone, Labuse's brigantine begins to assault the fort, firing a volley of cannonballs. Davis and Conklin provide additional support. The fort returns fire, but the pirates have them outgunned. The defenses soon fall, and the Royal African Company abandons the fort, leaving it in the hands of the pirates. Davis has successfully captured another fort. For seven weeks, it becomes a pirate playground. Curiously, it's at this time of revelry that a strange incident occurs that sows some tension within the pirates' ranks. One evening, with a plan to go out into the local towns and villages to impress the native women, the pirate captains go rifling through the stores of clothing Coughlin seized from Snellgrave's ship. Snellgrave recounts in his memoir a new account of some parts of Guinea and the slave trade, published in 1734, that each captain takes a coat. But Coughlin is not happy with his choice. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. He is wearing a scarlet coat with silver embroidery. It is loud and much too long for the diminutive Cochlin. Davis and Labuse refuse to trade, snickering at the flashy garment. But amidst the fun, the crew catches them taking from the booty which instantly turns the mood sour. Though it might seem a trifling matter, these officers have broken a cardinal rule in the pirate code. It was definitely not typical of pirate captains such as Howell Davis and Labuse to go down into stores and take out items such as fancy clothing for their uses. And the whole point is because they have a pirate code to prevent any sort of overreach of power. The whole point of having everything stored below was to make sure that everything was meticulously documented, organized, and also they knew exactly what was divvied up for which member of the crew and for how much. So for a captain to go down into the hold and kind of rummage through the stores and take out pieces, it doesn't matter what they are. It's violating taking the fair share of what the crew is owed. In the case of Howell and Labuse, sure enough, the crew was really outraged. They confiscated the clothing that they had taken and they forced them all to put them back into the chest. And also kind of as additional punishment, the crew all unanimously agreed to now go ahead and sell the clothing to the highest bidder so they wouldn't even have it physically on board anymore. According to Snellgrave's account, tensions continue to rise. Shortly after the coat incident, the pirates disagreed on where to go next. Davis wants to continue along the African coast. Labuse and Coughlin do not. At the impasse, the trio go their separate ways. It's June 1719. Davis is on the prowl. He plunders several slave ships, scoring goods, gold dust, and money. He also adds more men to his crew, one reluctant recruit is a fellow Welshman named Bartholomew Roberts. But for reasons unknown, Roberts' apprehension quickly dissipates. Davis soon discovers Roberts' navigation skills are unbeatable, and he comes to rely on him. We're not exactly positive how or why Howell Davis and Bartholomew Roberts sort of came together and began working together. There's a few things that we can speculate here. So Howell Davis and Bartholomew Roberts are both Welshmen. So they had this sort of kinship. People who generally from regions such as parts of Wales or Scotland or Ireland are all kind of have a much tighter unity here, especially being part of areas that they feel have been really downtrodden by the British here. And so this is kind of like an immediate bond that the two of them might have had. But also Howell Davis is recognizing Bartholomew Roberts' skill. Roberts was known to be a really excellent navigator. 
and on many ships to have someone in the position as a navigator that was quite a privileged thing to have on a ship many many ships did not actually have skilled workers like navigators the chance to bring somebody on with this skill was really highly desirable and Howell Davis would have given every incentive he could have to Bartholomew Roberts to join his crew for this reason whether it's due to their shared nationality or other personal reasons the two Welshmen bond and quickly become close allies Davis's next success is the capture of a large Dutch ship which he mounts 32 guns to and renames the Royal Rover which becomes his flagship it's not a moment too soon, as the now-tired Royal James springs a leak and sinks shortly afterwards. Davis sails the Royal Rover for the Portuguese island of Principe. Approaching the island, Davis raises the English flag as two Portuguese sloops approach them. Once again, Davis puts on his trickster's disguise. He assures the inspectors they are English privateers, following intelligence that pirates are stalking these waters. But his ship needs repairs and requests permission to dock. The lie is bought, and Davis is piloted into the harbor. Ashore, a friendly file of musketeers greets Davis and escorts him to the governor. The governor of Principe takes swimmingly to Davis. Davis, growing into the role of courteous privateer, assures his host that the King of England will pay for whatever they should take. All in all, it sounds like a good deal to the governor. So why would the governor of the island take Howell Davis as his word as a privateer? Howell Davis is coming in promising he's going to be getting money from the King of England. And this is a big incentive because at this point, British currency has now overtaken Spanish currency as the most valuable in this maritime trading world. So being a governor on the island, he's probably always struggling for a bit of funding. He needs a lot of money to maintain defenses in order to feed and house and clothe anyone who's working there, settlers, people who are in charge of the forts, the local governments. It's been two weeks and the pirates have successfully continued their subterfuge, partying and drinking on the island of Principe. But the jovial relationship isn't going to last. Davis is ready to plunder the island, but there's a problem. He still doesn't know where the treasure is stored. Assembling his crew, Davis outlines his strategy. He plans to lure the governor aboard the Royal Rover for a celebration. There, they will clap him in irons and hold him ransom for the sum of £4,000. As Davis conspires to overthrow the island, he gets an unexpected message. The governor is inviting him to the mansion for a party. Davis happily accepts. Davis and 10 of his top men, including Walter Kennedy, march to the governor's mansion, where they are kindly greeted and led inside. But there is no celebration waiting for them. Inside, Davis is met by the island's militia with muskets at the ready. It's an ambush. What Davis didn't know is that an enslaved man aboard his ship had jumped overboard, swam ashore, and told the governor that Davis was a bloodthirsty pirate. The deception is exposed. All that's left is confrontation. Surrounded by island militia, 
One of Davis's men draws his pistol. A gunfight breaks out. Several pirates and militiamen fall dead. The governor's mansion descends into chaos. Swiping left and right with a cutlass in one hand, discharging his pistol with the other, Davis orders a retreat. Of the 10 pirates who entered the house, only Davis and Walter Kennedy get out. But the militia is hot on their tails. Bullets whiz past their heads, their hearts pound in their chests, and their feet fly across the cobbled streets. But before they reach the boats, Davis is shot. He falls, rolling across the ground, his fine clothes soiled with dirt and blood. Another volley of bullets slam into his body, and he cries out in agony. Davis's strength and life drain from his numerous wounds. Summoning what he can, he tries to drag himself away, but it's in vain. Howell Davis slumps over and dies face down in the dirt. Somehow the young Walter Kennedy escapes and makes his way back to the Royal Rover. Drenched, filthy and fighting for breath, Kennedy tells Bartholomew Roberts and the others that Captain Davis has fallen. Taking the lead, Roberts calls on his crewmates to roll out the guns and unleash hell on the fort. Volleys of cannon fire send the fort up in smoke. The locals and militia flee from the sudden and terrible barrage, escaping the burning buildings. As fires rage, the Royal Rover slips out of the harbour and disappears into the blackness of the night. Like so many men who go on the account, Howell Davis's career is short and ends in disaster. His gains are relatively small compared to some pirates of the day, but his tactics were innovative and bold. He was a pioneer in navigating this new and treacherous period of piracy. But his greatest mark on history is yet to emerge. For Howell Davis will unlock the door for another to step through. He has paved the way for arguably the most successful and infamous of all Golden Age pirates. Next time on Real Pirates. In the wake of Howell Davis's death, the crew have a decision to make. Who will they elect as their next captain? Some suggest Walter Kennedy, others want Roberts. Not everyone will be happy with the outcome. As fate will have it, just six weeks after his capture, Bartholomew Roberts, Davis's fellow Welshman and reluctant pirate, will take command of the Royal Rover. In doing so, he will unleash a fury on colonial shipping the like of which has never been seen. He will soon become Black Bart the Dread Pirate. Find out next time on Real Pirates.
Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Borrow for Parcast. Produced by McAllister Beckson. Written by Luke Coons. Sound supervisor, Tom Pink. Edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer. Sound design by Matthias Torres Sole. Mixmaster by Cody Reynolds Shaw. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. 